Section 14 of the Second Jungle Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Magdalena Cook. The Second Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. Section 14. The King's Anchors. Part 1. These are the four that are never content, that have never been filled since the Jews began. Jackala's mouth, and the glut of the kite, and the hands of the ape, and the eyes of man. Jungle saying. Kaa, the big rock python, had changed his skin for perhaps the two hundredth time since his birth, and Mowgli, who never forgot that he owed his life to Kaa for a night's work at Cold Lairs, which you may perhaps remember, went to congratulate him. Skin changing always makes a snake moody and depressed till the new skin begins to shine and look beautiful. Kaa never made fun of Mowgli any more, but accepted him, as the other jungle people did, for the master of the jungle, and brought him all the news that a python of his size would naturally hear. What Kaa did not know about the middle jungle, as they call it, the life that runs close to the earth or under it, the boulder, burrow, and the tree-bowl life, might have been written upon the smallest of his scales. That afternoon Mowgli was sitting in the circle of Kaa's great coils, fingering the flaked and broken old skin that lay all looped and twisted among the rocks just as Kaa had left it. Kaa had very courteously packed himself under Mowgli's broad bare shoulders, so that the boy was really resting in a living armchair. Even to the scales of the eyes it is perfect, said Mowgli under his breath, playing with the old skin. Strange to see the covering of one's own head at one's own feet. Eh, but I lack feet, said Kaa. And since this is the custom of all my people, I do not find it strange. Does thy skin never feel old and harsh? Then I go and wash, Flathead. But, it is true, in the great heats I have wished I could slough my skin without pain and run skinless. I wash, and also I take off my skin. How looks the new coat? Mowgli ran his hand down the diagonal checkerings of the immense back. The turtle is harder-backed, but not so gay, he said judgmatically. The frog, my name-bearer, is more gay, but not so hard. It is very beautiful to see, like the mottling in the mouth of a lily. It needs water. A new skin never comes to full colour before the first bath. Let us go bathe. I will carry thee, said Mowgli, and he stooped down, laughing to lift the middle section of Carr's great body, just where the barrel was thickest. A man might just as well have tried to heave up a two-foot water main, and Carr lay still, puffing with quiet amusement. Then the regular evening game began. The boy in the flush of his great strength, and the python in his sumptuous new skin, standing up one against the other for a wrestling match, a trial of iron strength. Of course, Carr could have crushed a dozen Mowglis if he had let himself go, but he played carefully, and never loosed one-tenth of his power. Ever since Mowgli was strong enough to endure a little rough handling, Carr had taught him this game, and it suppled his limbs as nothing else could. Sometimes Mowgli would stand lapped almost to his throat in Carr's shifting coils, striving to get one arm free and catch him by the throat. Then Carr would give way limply, and Mowgli, with both quick-moving feet, would try to cramp the perches of that huge tail as it flung backward, feeling for a rock or a stump. They would rock to and fro, head to head, each waiting for his chance, till the beautiful statue-like group melted in a whirl of black and yellow coils and struggling legs and arms to rise up again and again. Now, now, now! 
said Carr, making feints with his head that even Mowgli's quick hand could not turn aside. Look, I touch thee there, little brother, here and here. Are thy hands numb? Here again. The game always ended in one way, with a straight driving blow of the head that knocked the boy over and over. Mowgli could never learn the guard for that lightning lunge, and as Carr said, there was not the least use in trying. Good hunting! Carr grunted at last, and Mowgli, as usual, was shot away half a dozen yards, gasping and laughing. He rose with his fingers full of grass and followed Carr to the white snake's pet bathing place, a deep, pitchy black pool surrounded with rocks and made interesting by sunken tree stumps. The boy slipped in jungle fashion without a sound and dived across, rose too without a sound and turned on his back, his arms behind his head watching the moon rising above the rocks and breaking up her reflection in the water with his toes. Carr's diamond-shaped head cut the pool like a razor, and came out to rest on Mowgli's shoulder. They lay still, soaking luxuriously in the cool water. "'It is very good,' said Mowgli at last sleepily. Now in the man-pack, at this hour, as I remember, they laid them down upon hard pieces of wood in the inside of a mud-trap, and having carefully shut out all the clean winds, drew foul cloth over their heavy heads, and made evil songs through their noses. It is better in the jungle. A hurrying cobra slipped down over a rock and drank, gave them good hunting, and went away. Shh, said Carr, as though he had suddenly remembered something. So the jungle gives thee all that thou hast ever desired, little brother? Not all, said Mowgli, laughing, else there would be a new and strong Shere Khan to kill once a moon. Now I could kill with my own hands, asking no help of buffaloes, and also I have wished the sun to shine in the middle of the rains, and the rains to cover the sun in the deep of summer, and also I have never gone empty, but I wished that I had killed a goat, and also I have never killed a goat, but I wished it had been Buck, nor Buck, but I wished it had been Nilgay. But thus do we feel, all of us. "'Thou hast no other desire?' the big snake demanded. "'What more can I wish? I have the jungle, and the favour of the jungle. "'Is there any more between sunrise and sunset?' "'Now the cobra said,' Carr began. "'What cobra?' "'He that went away just now said nothing. He was hunting. It was another. "'Hast thou many dealings with the poison people? "'I give them their own path. "'They carry death in the foretooth, and that is not good, for they are so small.' But what hood is this thou hast spoken with? Car rolled down slowly in the water like a steamer in a beam sea. Three or four moons since, he said, I hunted in cold lairs, which place thou hast not forgotten, and the thing I hunted fled shrieking past the tanks, and to that house whose side I once broke off for thy sake, and ran into the ground. But the people of cold lairs do not live in burrows. Mowgli knew that Car was telling of the monkey people. This thing was not living, but seeking to live, Carr replied with a quiver of his tongue. He ran into a burrow that led very far. I followed, and having killed, I slept, and when I waked, I went forward, under the earth. Even so, coming at last upon a white hood, a white cobra, who spoke of things beyond my knowledge, and showed me many things I had never before seen. New game? Was it good hunting? Mowgli turned quickly on his side. It was no game and it would have broken all my teeth. But the White Hood said that a man, he spoke as one that knew the breed, that a man would give the breath under his ribs for only the sight of those things. 
"'We will look,' said Mowgli. "'I now remember that I was once a man.' "'Slowly, slowly. "'It was haste that killed the yellow snake that ate the sun. "'We two spoke together under the earth, and I spoke of thee, "'naming thee as a man. "'Said the white hood, and he is indeed as old as the jungle, "'it is long since I have seen a man. "'Let him come, and he shall see all these things, "'for the least of which very many men would die.' That must be a new game. And yet the poison people do not tell us when game is afoot. They are an unfriendly folk. It is not a game. It is... it is... I cannot say what it is. We will go there. I have never seen a white hood, and I wish to see the other things. Did he kill them? They are all dead things. He says he is the keeper of them all. Ah, as a wolf stands above meat, he has taken to his own lair. Let us go. Mowgli swam to bank, rolled on the grass to dry himself, and the two set off for cold lairs, the deserted city of which you may have heard. Mowgli was not the least afraid of the monkey people in those days, but the monkey people had the liveliest horror of Mowgli. Their tribes, however, were raiding in the jungle, and so cold lairs stood empty and silent in the moonlight. Car led up to the ruins of the Queen's pavilion that stood on the terrace, slipped over the rubbish and dived down the half-choked staircase that went underground from the centre of the pavilion. Mowgli gave the snake call, We be of one blood, ye and I, and followed on his hands and knees. They crawled a long distance down a sloping passage that turned and twisted several times, and at last came to where the root of some great tree growing thirty feet overhead had forced out a solid stone in the wall. They crept through the gap and found themselves in a large vault, whose domed roof had also been broken away by the tree roots, so that a few streaks of light dropped down into the darkness. A safe lair, said Mowgli, rising to his firm feet, but over far to visit daily. And now what do we see? Am I nothing? said a voice in the middle of the vault, and Mowgli saw something white move till little by little there stood up the hugest cobra he had ever set eyes on a creature nearly eight foot long, and bleached by being in the darkness to an old ivory white. Even the spectacle marks of his spread hood had faded to faint yellow. His eyes was as red as rubies, and altogether he was most wonderful. Good hunting, said Mowgli, who carried his manners with his knife, and that never left him. What of the city? said the white cobra, without answering the greeting. What of the great, the walled city, the city of a hundred elephants and twenty thousand horses, and cattle past counting, the city of the king of twenty kings? I grow deaf here, and it is long since I heard their war-gongs. The jungle is above our heads, said Mowgli. I know only Hathi and his sons among elephants. Bagheera has slain all the horses in one village, and what is a king? I told thee, said Kaa softly to the cobra, I told thee, four moons ago, that thy city was not. The city, the great city of the forest, whose gates are guarded by the king's towers, can never pass. They builded it before my father's father came from the egg, and it shall endure when my son's sons are as white as I. Salomdi, son of Chandrabija, son of Vijija, son of Yigasuri, made it in the days of Bapa Rawal. Whose cattle are ye? It is a lost trail, said Mowgli, turning to Kaa. I know not his talk. Nor I. He is very old. 
father of cobras. There is only the jungle here, as it has been since the beginning. Then who is he? said the white cobra. Sitting down before me, unafraid, knowing not the name of the king, talking our talk through a man's lips. Who is he with a knife and the snake's tongue? Mowgli, they call me, was the answer. I am of the jungle. The wolves are my people, and Kaa here is my brother. Father of cobras, who art thou? I am the warden of the king's treasure. Karan Raja builded the stone above me, in the days when my skin was dark, that I might teach death to those who came to steal. Then they let down the treasure through the stone, and I heard the song of the Brahmins, my masters. Um, said Mowgli to himself, I have dealt with one Brahmin already, in the man-pack, and I know what I know. Evil comes here in a little. Five times since I came here has the stone been lifted, but always to let down more, and never to take away. There are no riches like these riches, the treasures of a hundred kings, but it is long and long since the stone was last moved, and I think that my city has forgotten. There is no city. Look up. Yonder are roots of great trees tearing the stones apart. Trees and men do not grow together, Carr insisted. Twice and thrice have men found their way here, the white cobra answered savagely, but they never spoke till I came upon them groping in the dark, and then they cried only a little time. But ye come with lies, man and snake both, and would have me believe the city is not, and that my wardship ends. Little do men change in the years, but I change never. Till the stone is lifted and the Brahmins come down singing the songs that I know, and feed me with warm milk and take me to that light again. I, I, I and no other am the warden of the king's treasure. The city is dead, you say, and here are the roots of the trees? Stoop down then and take what you will. Earth has no treasure like to these. Man with a snake's tongue, if thou canst go alive by the way that thou hast entered it, the lesser kings will be thy servants. Again the trail is lost, said Mowgli coolly. Can any jackal have burrowed so deep and bitten this great white hood? He is surely mad. Father of cobras, I see nothing here to take away. By the gods of the sun and moon, it is the madness of death upon the boy, hissed the cobra. Before thine eyes close, I will allow thee this favour. Look thou, and see what man has never seen before. They do not well in the jungle who speaks to Mowgli of favours, said the boy between his teeth, but the dark changes all, as I know. I will look if that pleases thee. He stared with puckered-up eyes round the vault, and lifted up from the floor a handful of something that glittered. Oh, said he, this is like the stuff they play with in the man-pack, only this is yellow and the other was brown. He let the gold pieces fall and moved forward. The floor of the vault was buried some five or six feet deep in coined gold and silver that had burst from the sacks it had been originally stored in. And, in the long years, the metal had packed and settled as sand packs at low tide. On it, and in it, and rising through it, as wrecks lift through the sand, were jewelled elephant howdars of embossed silver, studded with plates of hammered gold, and adorned with carbuncles and turquoises. There were palanquins and litters for carrying queens, framed and braced with silver and enamel, with jade-handled poles and amber-curtain rings. There were golden candlesticks hung with pierced emeralds that quivered on the branches. There were studded images, five feet high, of forgotten gods, 
silver with jewelled eyes, there were coats of mail, gold inlaid on steel, and fringed with rotted and blackened seed-pearls. There were helmets, crested and beaded with pigeons' blood rubies. There were shields of lacquer, of tortoiseshell, rhinoceros hide, strapped and bossed with red gold and set with emeralds at the edge. There were sheaves of diamond-hilted swords, daggers and hunting-knives. There were golden sacrificial bowls and ladles, and portable altars of a shape that never sees the light of day. There were jade-cups and bracelets, there were incense-burners, combs and pots for perfume, henna and eye-powder, all in embossed gold. There were nose-rings, armlets, headbands, finger-rings, and girdles past any counting. There were belts, seven fingers broad, of square-cut diamonds and rubies, and wooden boxes, trebly clamped with iron, from which the wood had fallen away in powder, showing the pile of uncut star sapphires, opals, cat's-eyes, sapphires, rubies, diamonds, emeralds, and garnets within. The white cobra was right. No mere money would begin to pay the value of this treasure. The sifted pickings of centuries of war, plunder, trade, and taxation— the coins alone were priceless, leaving out of count all the precious stones, and the dead weight of the gold and silver alone might be two or three hundred tons. Every native ruler in India to-day, however poor, has a hoard to which he is always adding, and though, once in a long while, some enlightened prince may send off forty or fifty bullock cartloads of silver to be exchanged for government securities. The bulk of them keep their treasure and the knowledge of it very closely to themselves. But Mowgli naturally did not understand what these things meant. The knives interested him a little, but they did not balance so well as his own, and so he dropped them. At last he found something really fascinating laid on the front of a howdah half buried in the coins. It was a three-foot ankus, or elephant goad, something like a small boat hook. The top was one round shining ruby, and eight inches of the handle below it were studded with rough turquoises close together giving a most satisfactory grip. Below them was a rim of jade with a flower pattern running around it. Only the leaves were emeralds, and the blossoms were rubies sunk in the cool green stone. The rest of the handle was a shaft of pure ivory, while the point, the spike and hook, was gold inlaid steel with pictures of elephant catching, and the pictures attracted Mowgli, who saw that they had something to do with his friend Harthy the Silent. The white cobra had been following him closely. "'Is this not worth dying to behold?' he said. "'Have I not done thee a great favour? "'I do not understand,' said Mowgli. "'The things are hard and cold, and by no means good to eat. "'But this,' he lifted the ancus, "'I desire to take away, that I may see it in the sun. "'Thou sayest they are all thine. "'Will thou give it to me, and I will bring thee frogs to eat?' "'The white cobra fairly shook with evil delight.' "'Assuredly I will give it,' he said. "'All that there is I will give thee, till thou goest away.' "'But I go now. The place is dark and cold, "'and I wish to take the thorn-pointed thing to the jungle. "'Look by thy foot. What is that there?' "'Mowgli picked up something white and smooth. "'It is the bone of a man's head,' he said quietly. "'And here are two more. "'They came to take the treasures away many years ago.' I spoke to them in the dark, and they lay still. But what do I need of this that is called treasure? If thou wilt give me the anchors to take away, it is good hunting. If not, it is good hunting none the less. 
I do not fight with the poison people, and I was also taught the master-word of thy tribe. There is but one master-word here. It is mine. Car flung himself forward with blazing eyes. Who bade me bring the man? he hissed. I surely, the old cobra lisped. It is long since I have seen man, and the man speaks our tongue. But there was no talk of killing. How can I go to the jungle and say that I have led him to his death? said Car. I talk not of killing till the time, and as to thy going or not going, there is the hole in the wall. Peace, now, thou fat monkey-killer, I have but to touch thy neck, and the jungle will know thee no longer. Never man came here that went away with the breath under his ribs. I am the warden of the treasure of the king's city. But thou white worm of the dark, I tell thee there is neither king nor city. The jungle is all about us, cried Kaa. There is still the treasure, but this can be done. Wait a while, Car of the Rocks, and see the boy run. There is room for great sport here. Life is good. Run to and fro a while and make sport, boy. Mowgli put his hands on Car's head quietly. The white thing has dealt with men of the man-pack until now. He does not know me, he whispered. He has asked for this hunting. Let him have it. Mowgli had been standing with the anchor's held point down. He flung it from him quickly, and it dropped crossways just behind the great snake's hood, pinning him to the floor. In a flash, Carr's weight was upon the writhing body, paralysing it from hood to tail. The red eyes burned, and the six bare inches of the head struck furiously right and left. "'Kill!' said Carr, as Mowgli's hand went to his knife. "'No,' he said as he drew the blade. "'I will never kill again, save for food. "'But look you, Carr!' He caught the snake behind the hood, forced the mouth open with the blade of the knife, and showed the terrible poison fangs of the upper jaw lying black and withered in the gum. The white cobra had outlived his poison, as a snake will. End of section 14